something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two in our series on that most charismatic anatomical feature of whales, the blowhole, also known as the spiracle or the spout. If you are just joining us and you haven't heard part one, you might want to hop back in the timeline and listen to that one first. That's where we go over a lot of the basic science of the blowhole. Uh, But uh, as I mentioned last time, this is a subject that I was tempted to look into because there is a whole chapter about the spout in the classic 19th century American novel Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Now, if you've ever read Moby Dick, uh, you'll probably recall that it is not all high-speed whale chases and uh, heroics by Queequeg and mad sermons of vengeance by Captain Ahab. An awful lot of the book is made up of chapters that could be considered strange, thoughtful little essays on objects, both technological and biological, technological subjects like uh, various pieces of whaling equipment and things on ships and uh, biological subjects like the various parts of a sperm whale's body. And one of the latter chapters is called The Fountain. It concerns the blowhole. And I thought this was this would make an interesting subject for us in particular, because the chapter raises a number of um practical controversies about the biology of whale spouts, as well as some tantalizing but questionable claims about uh, sprays of blubbery venom from the hole. Now, among the primary controversies that concern the narrator Ishmael in this chapter uh, is the question, what is it exactly that shoots out of the whale's spout? What are the plumes that whaling ships used to locate these animals out on the high sea? And of course, uh, these are still, you know, uh, people looking for the the whale blow is uh, still what like whale watchers today would use to to look for these animals. Is it a towering jet of water blasting as if from a fire hose, as it is often depicted? I'd say most often depicted. Or is it nothing more than gas, vapor or mist? And to get us started here, I want to read from uh, this chapter in Moby Dick articulating this first question. Are you all right if I read this, Rob? Go for it. Okay, okay. This is what Ishmael says. You have seen him spout. Then declare what the spout is. Can you not tell water from air? My dear sir, in this world, it is not so easy to settle these plain things. I have ever found your plain things the naughtiest of all, and as for this whale spout, you might almost stand in it and yet be undecided as to what it is precisely. The central body of it is hidden in the snowy, sparkling mist enveloping it. 
And how can you certainly tell whether any water falls from it when always, when you are close enough to a whale to get a close view of his spout, he is in a prodigious commotion, the water cascading all around him? And if at such times you should think that you really perceived drops of moisture in the spout, how do you know that they are not merely condensed from its vapor? Or how do you know that they are not those identical drops superficially lodged in the spout hole fissure? which is countersunk into the summit of the whale's head. For even when tranquilly swimming through the midday sea in a calm, with his elevated hump sun-dried as a dromedaries in the desert, even then the whale always carries a small basin of water on his head, as under a blazing sun you will sometimes see a cavity in a rock filled up with rain. Whoa, 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 whoa. This kind of went off the rails. Yeah. And here. What, you, you do not agree that whales always have a, uh, a pool of water on top of them, like a rock filled up with rain? Right. Or that they keep their elevated humps sun-dried as a, as a camel's in the desert. Uh, I, uh, yeah. That is a good I, I don't know if there's anything to that claim or not. Like, would a whale ever keep a part of its body consistently exposed over the surface or do they I mean what I feel like I've seen most of the time is repeatedly going under and then coming back up to to breathe and then returning correct yeah I think I think there'll be a hint of this in one of the sources I'll refer to in a bit concerning uh, depictions and iconography of whales which very often still do uh, picture the whale as having a large portion of its head above the water as if that's just how it rides around yeah. Now, we already discussed uh, discussed this question to some extent in the last episode, and the consensus of experts, marine biologists, and just whale watchers uh, that we were reading last time seemed to be that what comes out of the whale's blowhole is not primarily water. It is not a jet like from a fire hose, but it is the explosive exhalation of gas from the whale's lungs. And to be clear, that can be quite explosive because when a whale breathes out, especially after it has been under for a long time, it nearly totally collapses its lungs. It is like a blast of breath. Uh, and that exhalation can create a very watery-looking blow for several reasons. First of all, the exhaled breath contains vapor, which condenses into mist and droplets when it leaves the warmer environment of the whale's lungs and airways and enters the colder environment of the atmosphere above, similar to how you can see your own breath on a cold day. Then, of course, there's also some droplet content uh, in the in the whale's breath that is just mucus being exhaled, kind of like when we sneeze. And then there's probably also some splashing of seawater, which may happen if the exhalation begins before the blowhole breaks the surface of the water. So some water is just getting sort of splashed up by the blast or if there was some amount of seawater trapped in the airways. Uh, Rob, do you, is that about the, the gist of it, you think? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and like I say, I from from my uh, family's trip down to Mexico to observe the gray whales in their lagoons, uh, very much the case with those uh, exhalations that occur below the surface of the water. Those can be quite explosive uh, and, and create what feels like a fountain next to you in the in the water. But that does not mean the whale spout is shooting a jet. It is breathing out, and that breath is gas, though it contains probably some mucus droplets and, and bits of water. Now, um, of note, I've run across various descriptions, uh, both in literature and in uh, just uh, you know, discussions of, of whale behavior, of the, of the spout with a rainbow within it. You know, the spout mist goes up into the air. And you can see the reflection, the refraction, and the, uh, uh, and the uh, dispersion of light in the water droplets. Uh, I don't have much to say about that other than it is neat uh, to see. And uh, you've certainly seen it, see that it has captured people's imaginations over the years. And you can find various photos of this today from whale watchers. Rob, when you mentioned this, did you know that this actually connects to the final paragraph of this chapter in Moby Dick? I it, Moby Dick was coming up in my searches. I you know I've never actually read Moby Dick. I've only uh -huh. uh, I've only seen the, uh, the the film adaptations. Um, but um, I I did suspect that Melville also touched on this. I actually he writes about it quite beautifully. So if you don't mind, the, in the last paragraph he says, 
and how nobly it raises our conceit of the mighty, misty monster to behold him solemnly sailing through a calm tropical sea, his vast, mild head overhung by a canopy of vapor, engendered by his incommunicable contemplations, and that vapor, as you will sometimes see it, glorified by a rainbow, as if heaven itself put its seal upon his thoughts. For, do you see, rainbows do not visit the clear air, they only irradiate vapor, true science fact. And so, through all the thick mists of the dim doubts in my mind, divine intuitions now and then shoot, enkindling my fog with a heavenly ray. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and really, I mean, this is what it's like to be in the company of whales. Like the idea that, that heaven is glorifying them with a rainbow I, it does not feel hyperbolic. Uh, to me, have, having been in their presence, like being in the presence of a whale invites hyperbole um, because it's just such a, an overwhelming experience. Haven't had the experience myself, but I can't disagree. It seems quite true to m most observers who write of it. But I want to come back to this misconception, the idea that the whale spout shoots a jet of water like from a fire hose. Do, do we have any idea, like, where does this misconception come from? How far back does it go? And like, why were people saying this? Yeah, it's interesting to try and tease this apart, getting into these older descriptions of whales and older understandings of whale behavior and biology. Um, you know, it, there's a lot we're still unraveling about whales today, but historically there was a great deal that wasn't known about these creatures. Uh, and they were frequently the subject of myth, legend, and folklore. And, uh, and even people who were trying to, you know, skeptically understand them were often having to depend on the word of sailors and uh, second and third hand accounts of what they do. Um, and then you throw whalers into the mix. And of course, uh, you know, that also skews things in different directions. But they were, you know, generally they were often interpreted as fish, as monsters, as gods, as shapeshifters and more. Now, concerning whale blow or whale spout in particular, there are a few main myths and misconceptions yeah, to discuss. Uh, you know, first hitting on this one about the about the spout being a jet of water. Um, again, this is something that not only do you find in old bestiaries and woodcuts, uh, some of those old maps, um, you see these fabulous like beaked whales with two, uh, you know, almost like Martian, old school Martian style blowholes on the top of their head that are depicted just spouting big jets of water like they're fire engines. They have almost horns made of water or like antennae. Yes. And then just poking around, if you if you have, have your your smartphone with you and you pull up, uh, pull up somebody in there, uh, do a, a you know, a, a text. And uh, if you go in to throw in some whale emojis, chances are, if, I don't know if your phone's like mine, you'll have two to choose from. One is a more thankfully scientifically accurate whale. But the other is what we've seen a million times in emojis and clip art. It is a cartoon whale spouting a fountain out of its uh, single blowhole on the top of its head. At the same way it is most often drawn with the fountain splitting in a kind of fork two ways. Yeah, which, as we discussed in the previous episode, you know, the, the spout has different shapes and different intensities depending on the species of the whale. Some do kind of squirt off in two directions, but uh, it's the, the, the way you see it in clip art and these simplistic cartoon illustrations. Yeah, it tends to look just like a fountain. Now, in trying to in, in getting into this, uh, I ended up I, I kept pulling up older sources, uh, but one of the the more interesting older sources on this is an 1884 book by naturalist Henry Lee titled "Sea Fables Explained," uh, and it um, it took on this misconception about whale spout more than a century ago. Now, a brief note on Henry Lee. Uh, he was a 19th century English naturalist who specialized in marine organisms, and for a time he was the director of the Brighton Aquarium in England. But he is notable for writing measured, skeptical investigations of cryptozoological legends. And in this latter capacity, he has actually come up on the show before, I think on some episodes that we just recently did uh, for, for Vaults on Saturdays. Uh, so Lee was the author of the 1887 monograph called The Vegetable Lamb of Tartary, A Curious mm -hmm. Fable of the Cotton Plant. Uh, we discussed this at length in those episodes on the vegetable lamb, which, of course, was a legendary organism with accounts going back to ancient times, usually described as a 
basically a mammal that grew from a plant, a furry flesh and blood mammal that had meat and bones and blood that came out of a stalk that was attached to the ground through roots and grew somewhere in Central Asia. While there have been multiple skeptical attempts to make sense of these legends uh, going back hundreds of years, Lee offered, and I think in both of our views, an, an extremely persuasive argument that these accounts actually go back to uh, observations and misunderstandings of the cotton plant. So uh, by the standards I would normally apply to a I don't know, a multidisciplinary skeptical treatise involving literary, historical, and biological knowledge from the 1880s. I, I recall being extremely impressed with with uh, the last work of Lee's that we looked at. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like uh, this this book, what I read from it, uh, which is basically the, the chapter on whale spout, uh, I, I thought, it, thought it was very level and uh, in many ways ahead of its time. So in this chapter, he cites an example of this uh, whale spout misunderstanding in the uh, the work of the second century Greco-Roman poet uh, Opian. And uh, this is the quote, uh, uncouth the sight when they in dreadful play discharge their nostrils and refund a sea, while noisy finfish let their fountains fly and spout the curling torrent to the sky. So beautiful you know in, in translation obviously but mm -hmm. um, but yeah this idea of refunding the sea letting the fountain fly a curling torrent up to the sky it's at least a landsman's idea of what whale spout consisted of based on what i've read it seems like the most common understanding was that whales were shooting jets of water out of their blowholes because they like swallowed a lot of water through their mm -hmm. mouths while eating and then they would have to squirt it back out but couldn't do that through their mouths for some reason yeah yeah which i, I think it's one of those things that certainly by this point naturalists knew that this is not how an organism worked and certainly not how a, whale, how a whale works. And so Lee, yeah, he basically lays out that this had been already been refuted time and time again by naturalists, but that the image was just too entrenched in the popular imagination and popular imagery of whales to be fully dismissed. And also more people are casually taking these images in than they are actually listening to the naturalists. Uh, and we have to I guess we also have to, to to bear in mind, like today, so many of us have access, whether we're, we're actively watching them or not, to fabulous documentaries about the uh, biology and behavior of whales. So many opportunities to see for yourself what the whale spout looks like. And this, of course, was not always the case. Right. So back then, there might have been more correct knowledge about whales and their mammalian biology in books, but that it it really hits home more when you just like see some video of them moving and swimming and spouting. Right, right. So he rails against, quote, sensational pictures in which whales are presented with their heads above the surface and throwing up from their nostrils columns of water like the fountains in Trafalgar Square. <laughs> now, he cites uh, another erroneous description uh, from a 16th century map uh, by uh, map master Olaus Magnus, uh, this is somebody we've talked about on the show before and concerning old maps and sea monsters. Right. I think he came up uh, extensively in my interview with uh, Chet Van Duzer on the, mm -hmm. the history of uh, monsters on maps. But, uh, but I think he's come up in other capacities as well. This is this is a recurring guest here. Yes. Lee uh, writes the following, quoting uh, Magnus. Quote, for to the danger of seamen, he will sometimes raise himself above the sail yards and cause such floods of water above his head, which he had sucked in, that with a cloud of them, he will often sink the strongest ships or expose the mariners to extreme danger. This beast hath also a large round mouth like a lamprey, whereby he sucks in his meat or water and by his weight casts upon the fore or or hinder deck, he sinks and drowns a ship. Hinder deck, hinder deck, hinder deck, I think. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> you, you get the idea. Like, here's this big uh, monster. And there, and he here's some woodcut uh, illustrations in this article, and you can, you can easily find these as well, depicting the same sort of like, you know, beaked monstrosity we just described uh, with these creatures, like coming up to a ship and spitting out the, you know, using their, their strange blowholes to just flood a ship and make it sink. Brutal. Not real, though. Yeah, no. And, and Lee continues to, to rail against this. He shares that after previously trying to set the record straight on this in a publication, he received letters stating that, OK, sure, while lesser whales 
might not spout water like this. The great whales are doing it. They're totally doing it. You're wrong. Um, so he goes on to discuss the basics of blowhole anatomy and function, driving home that there's no way this system could be the, the, the system that you find uh, in, in a whale's head, great or small. There's no way that this system could be used to squirt jets of pure water. It's just not how, um, how, how their bodies work. Right. So as we said before, uh, in certain cases, there might be a lot of splashing from a whale's explosive exhalation, but it's exhaling gas and that maybe some uh, some splash is getting caught up in that exhalation, but it is not squirting water. The What's coming out is from its lungs. Right. And, and he he lays all this out and discusses everything we've just mentioned before that, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's not water coming out. But you know, if the exhalation comes below the surface of the water, it's liable to carry up a lot of water and have this explosive watery appearance. Now, given all this, I did want to be fair. I want to come back and add that to the partial credit of Ishmael, the narrator of Moby Dick, he does come down on what we now know to be the correct side of the water jet versus mist or vapor debate. So he says it is mist, but he gives a fairly hilarious reason for thinking it is mist. Uh, his explanation is as follows, quote, I account him, meaning the sperm whale, no common shallow being inasmuch as it is an undisputed fact that he is never found on soundings or near shores. All other whales sometimes are. He is both ponderous and profound, and I am convinced that from the heads of all ponderous, profound beings, such as Plato, Pyrrho, the Devil, Jupiter, Dante, and so on, there always goes up a certain semi-visible steam while in the act of thinking deep thoughts. While composing a little treatise on eternity, I had the curiosity to place a mirror before me, and ere long saw reflected there a curious involved worming and undulation in the atmosphere over my head. The invariable moisture of my hair, while plunged in deep thought, after six cups of hot tea in my thin-shingled attic of an August noon, this seems an additional argument for the above supposition." <laughs> Oh, Ishmael. That's so this good. Is, I guess sweaty one time too. Yeah. <laughs> These are some some wonderful mental gymnastics, which again land him in the right spot, but uh, some unnecessary twists and turns. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, uh, it's worth noting, for the most part, this this misunderstanding of whale anatomy is, is victimless, right? I mean, it's like, okay, worst case scenario, you think that a, a whale shoots water out of its blowhole. I mean, what's it hurt? If you encounter a whale, you'll be set right on this. But it's worth noting that the myth of whale spouts and water can even prove uh, actually dangerous to whales. Uh, this according to Dan Jarvis of the British Divers Marine Life Rescue uh, organization is quoted in a 2021 Melissa Hobson article on nationalgeographic.co.uk. Apparently, there have been cases where people who are not familiar with the anatomy of whales, who still have this idea of the whale fountain in their mind, they, hap- they have happened upon a stranded whale on the beach, uh, and thinking that this great fish needs water, start pouring water into its blowhole, which can drown the whale. Oh, no. Yeah. So, you know, there are cases where not knowing what's going on, even as a, you know, a non-biologist, it can lead to uh, something like this. So don't go pouring water into blowholes. Certainly not. But OK, I think we can mostly close the book on the idea of the water jet. It's not a water jet. But returning to Sea Fables Explained by Henry Lee, uh, Lee also briefly addresses a strange claim in the same chapter of Moby Dick that caught our attention and we wanted to investigate further. And to refresh you, uh, we, we mentioned this in the last episode, but this is the allegation uh, made by Ishmael that the whale spout is poisonous, uh, a claim that seemed prima facie unlikely to both of us. But to read again from Moby Dick, uh, just so you'll know what he's saying, uh, he says that um, for even when coming into slight contact with the outer vapory shreds of the jet, which will often happen, your skin will feverishly smart from the acridness of the thing so touching it. And I know one who coming into still closer contact with the spout, whether with some scientific object in view or otherwise, I cannot say, the skin peeled off from his cheek and arm. Wherefore, among whalemen, the spout is deemed poisonous. They try to evade it. Another thing, I have heard it said, and I do not much doubt it, that if the jet is fairly spouted into your eyes, it will blind you. The wisest thing the investigator can do then, it seems to me, is to let this deadly spout alone. So that's a a number of strange claims. He says, "Okay, I've got a friend who got some whale blow on him and that made his skin peel off. Uh, Whalemen generally say that the blow that comes out of the spout is poisonous. And uh, if you get it in your eyes, it will make you blind. So Lee doesn't spend a lot of time with this. He mentions it. uh, He doesn't really have much to add, but he, he kind of dismisses it out of hand and also throws in there that Herman Melville is, quote, not a naturalist. <laughs> and he doesn't ha- seem to have much to add beyond that, aside from mentioning an account from a steamship whaler uh, that uh, he, he writes, quote, he believes that the blast was strong enough to blow a man off the spiracle if he were seated on it. Um, now, I don't know. Okay. That, that, that also feels kind of like a tall tale, but maybe a more believable. It's not saying that it will blow your skin off and blind you, but he's just saying, well, it's, it's pretty explosive. If you were seated right on it, I bet it would blast you into the air. I think it definitely would make you move. So just on, just strong enough to blow a man off the spiracle. I believe he would not remain on the spiracle if you were somehow balanced there for the spout. Right. So it might knock you off, but it would not, as often depicted in cartoons and illustrations, create a create a jet that then leaves you floating in the air above it. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of it being used as an offensive blast against ships. um, Yeah, that's pure fantasy. Now, one thing I did find interesting, Lee doesn't go into this, but he mentions that this being an account from a steamship whaler. And uh, I can't help but wonder about during the age of steam power. 
if there's like not some level of technological comparison going on in one's mind where you know, steam comes out of the top of a ship. Steam, of course, is uh, is very hot and can damage you and, and you know, burn the skin off of your body, things like that. Hmm. And so if there's some sort of like comparison that gets made between the ship and the whale, which, of course, is large, travels in the water and also emits these blasts that don't look unlike steam. Uh, like maybe it's the kind of thing where there's just kind of like a subconscious comparison being made. That's interesting. I never thought about that, but that does seem plausible. So I did my own digging around for answers on the question of the supposedly poisonous whale spout. And like you, Rob, I found no support whatsoever for the claim that the blow from the blowhole is poisonous, meaning that it contains a chemical toxin or venom uh, with directly injurious effects on nearby mammals through either topical contact or ingestion. Uh, I found nothing on that. In fact, I didn't even find that many references to this passage in Moby Dick, which I was surprised by. I thought I would come across more, I don't know, scientific sources referencing it, even if only to contradict it or maybe try to uh, get at the source of this belief. But it just doesn't seem like this uh, this idea gets a lot of stick. One example of the kind of reference I found was in not even really a uh, scientific book, uh, just a, a sort of uh, book on, on gray whales called Gray Whales Wandering Giants by Robert Bush from 1998, which mentions the claim in Moby Dick that the, the spout is poisonous uh, only to say that it's not poisonous at all, uh, but that sometimes it does have a very powerful smell. And the author quotes John Steinbeck from a work called The Log from the Sea of Cortez, uh, and Steinbeck wrote, a whale's breath is frightfully sickening. It <laughs> smells of complete decay. Uh, the author here, Bush, says, yeah, I don't know. I've, it's never really smelled that way to me. Yeah, um, I, I, I was in a position to smell a lot of gray whale breath. And um, I don't know. I mean, there is a breathiness to it, I guess, at times. But um, yeah, I didn't, wouldn't say it stinks. Now, one thing to keep in mind, though, is like the, these are organisms the blowhole is, um, you know, a breathing orifice. So uh, I have read that you, you do have situations where you can have a sick whale. So that could impact what you're smelling, I suppose. That, yeah. And Bush says the same thing. Maybe when it, maybe its breath smells worse when it is diseased or wounded or something. Mm -hmm. So beyond this, I was just, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to expand my, my circle of interest here. I was looking to find any evidence of any mammal or any animal for that matter that is believed to have poisonous or venomous breath. And I really could not find anything that fits the description. Despite the popularity of creatures with toxic breath in Dungeons and Dragons in video games, it's a good area of mm -hmm. effect type attack. But uh, but I couldn't find really any evidence of this in reality. Maybe there is such a thing and I just wasn't searching the right way. But the closest stuff I could find is what we're all more familiar with, like animals that might spit venom or something, but not having toxic breath. Yeah, about the only thing that really comes to my mind is uh, uh, vultures, say, uh, vomiting, uh, which there are a few different interpretations of that behavior, but it's not quite a Dungeons and Dragons area of effect attack. And still, that would be vomit from the digestive system, not toxic breath. Right, right. Not toxic gas emitted from the, the, the mouth. So is this claim in Moby Dick just completely made up? Maybe Melville just made it up to make, you know, just for interesting fictional effect. Or maybe it was something he heard uh, he heard from people that was an actual belief among whalers, but they just made it up. Well, maybe. But then again, maybe not. While I think it's clear that the uh, exhalation of of whales is not poisonous or venomous. I think this could be a misunderstanding of something that does seem true, which is that I found evidence that sometimes after certain types of contact with marine mammals, including whales, people do report reactions. In fact, this is a great bit of listener mail. We heard from a listener after mm -hmm. part one of this series who has a bit of relevant personal experience. Uh, so, Rob, I'm going to read Tabitha's email here. All right. Tabitha says, Dear Robert and Joe, regarding the consequences of getting a face full of blowhole ejecta, I have a family experience. As a child, I went on a dolphin watching boat trip. 
When dolphins started swimming alongside the boat and playing in the bow waves, my sister and I were allowed to lie on the deck and stick our heads out under the railing to watch them. It was the 90s. One dolphin surfaced and exhaled directly into my sister's face from close range. Initially, she was fine, if a bit slimy and embarrassed. Later that day, however, her eyes turned red, weepy, and swelled almost shut. I don't really remember the aftermath, except for thinking it was hilarious. But <laughs> as far as I recall, it got better in a day or so, suggesting an allergic reaction rather than bacterial infection. So maybe a certain number of people are just really allergic to cetaceans. Maybe a lot of people, but we don't have the opportunity to find out very often. I can imagine a whaling crew having one case of whale snot face rash and the story spreading until it reaches the flesh-dissolving, eye-melting, tall tale stage. Love the show as always, Tabitha. Well, fascinating, and thank you so much for sharing this, Tabitha. So, I totally agree that it is not hard to imagine some 19th century whalers could observe experiences like this and conclude incorrectly from it that the whale spout is is toxic, is venomous or poisonous, like the venom of a, of a spitting cobra or something. Uh, but I was wondering more about the mechanism. What is actually going on here? Now, I honestly could not find much of anything documenting uh, what, were, what were directly classified as allergic reactions to cetacean blow. Uh, but I did find a very interesting source documenting similar reactions in the context of human zoonotic diseases from marine mammal vectors. Now, this is something I really had never thought about before we did this series. Of course, when you think about zoonotic diseases, you think about bats, you think about uh, livestock animals, you know, maybe pigs, birds, and so forth. I had never thought of the idea that humans could catch diseases from whales, uh, seals, dolphins, and so forth. Yeah, yeah, me neither. But now allow me to introduce you to the paper Health Risks for Marine Mammal Workers, published in the journal Diseases of Aquatic Organisms, the year 2008, by Tanya Hunt et al. Uh, this is a paper where the authors say there have been, you know, isolated documented cases of humans acquiring zoonotic diseases from marine mammals. There are certain uh, diseases that are that are well known and even have interesting little names such as seal finger. Hmm. If you want to be grossed out, you can look up images of seal finger. Uh, but th they wanted to design a survey to get a, a broader range of, uh, of responses. So they wanted to survey professionals and volunteers who regularly work directly with marine mammals to see how common various types of injuries and work-related illnesses were in people who have contact with these animals. So what did they find? Uh, to read from their abstract, uh, first of all, they characterized the people who responded to the survey. Uh, most respondents, 88%, were researchers and uh, rehabilitators. And then they say, quote, of all respondents, 50% reported suffering an injury caused by a marine mammal. And 23% reported having a skin rash or reaction. Marine mammal work-related illnesses commonly reported included seal finger, which is uh, now known to be uh, traceable to a, to a bacterium called mycoplasma, conjunctivitis, that's very interesting because that conjunctivitis is, um, is irritation and swelling of the eyes that, of course, connects to Tabitha's story, but also connects to the idea that uh, getting whale blow in your face could make you blind. Mm-hmm. But to go on, viral dermatitis, bacterial dermatitis, and nonspecific contact dermatitis. This is rash or irritation of the skin. Although specific diagnoses could not be uh, confirmed by a physician through the study, severe illnesses were reported and included tuberculosis, leptospirosis, brucellosis, and mm. serious sequelae to seal finger. Risk factors associated with increased odds of injury and illness included prolonged and frequent exposure to marine mammals, direct contact with live marine mammals, and contact with tissue, blood, and excretions. Hmm. And I was looking at another paper tracking uh, marine mammal zoonoses in humans. This was by Waltzek et al. in Zoonoses and Public Health from 2012. And it uh, also tried to collect all of the literature on zoonotic infections from marine mammals and humans. And it concluded that uh, the most 
common type of uh, zoonotic reaction to marine mammals was localized skin infections in humans, which, again, makes you think about the, the, the discussion about uh, like peeling skin and skin reactions that Melville mentions. Mm-hmm. So those are human diseases that have been tentatively linked, at least circumstantially, to contact with marine mammals. But we need to introduce some caveats. Uh, Number one, this includes a wide range of different marine mammals, so not just whales, but all kinds of marine mammals, and a wide range of different types of contact, including touching of skin, bites, contact with blood and inner organs, etc., not just exposure to, say, mucus and droplets from the blowhole of whales. So what if we were to come at this question from the other direction and ask, what is in whale snot specifically? When a whale breathes out, there's got to be plenty of bacteria and stuff in there. Has anybody ever documented what microbes are present in the blow of a whale and whether that list contains anything that could cause skin or eye infections or otherwise create the impression, uh, even the false impression, that the spout is poisonous or venomous? Uh, Yes, there have, in fact, been investigations, microbiological investigations of whale blow. Uh, The first one I wanted to mention was a paper from 2017. This was published in uh, M-Systems 2, which is an American Society for Microbiology journal. It's by Amy April et al., and it's called Extensive Core Microbiome in Drone-Captured Whale Blow Supports a Framework for Health Monitoring. Uh, This study was interesting because it used a drone to fly above the water surface and collect blow from two populations of healthy humpback whales, one Pacific group off of Vancouver Island and an Atlantic group off of Cape Cod. Uh, And I was thinking, wow, that's a good use for drones. Yeah. So they took these samples, but then they compared the microbes uh, present in them to what was present in just samples of straight seawater from around, because obviously some seawater gets in with the blow. So you're looking to see what's in the blow that's not just in the seawater. And the authors write, quote, the blow microbiomes were distinct from the seawater microbiomes and included 25 phylogenetically diverse bacteria common to all sampled whales. This core assemblage comprised on average 36% of the microbiome, making it one of the more consistent animal microbiomes studied to date. The closest phylogenetic relatives of 20 of these core microbes were previously detected in marine mammals, suggesting that this core microbiome assemblage is specialized for marine mammals and may indicate a healthy, non-infected pulmonary system. So that's interesting. These two geographically distinct populations of healthy humpback whales from different oceans share a common baseline of non-pathogenic bacterial species. Of course, the fact that a bacterium is not pathogenic in its normal whale host doesn't necessarily tell you how how it will behave when sprayed onto the skin or into the eyes of a human being. But then the other uh, study I wanted to mention is one that was published in uh, Nature Scientific Reports by Raverty et al. in uh, 2017 called Respiratory Microbiome of Endangered Southern Resident Killer Whales and Microbiota of Surrounding Sea Surface Microlayer in the Eastern North Pacific. Uh, so uh, to, to summarize from a, uh, a news report on this article I was reading from the University of British Columbia, uh, Stephen Raverty, he was the lead author on the study. He's a, he's a professor or an adjunct professor at uh, University of British Columbia's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries. And this study was looking at the microbiome of endangered southern resident killer whales in what's known as the Salish Sea. It's the, the sea around the, I think, the sort of the inside of Vancouver Island. It's uh, the sea around that stretch throughout British Columbia and Washington State. And this study was focused on the health of orcas, not on humans. So this was not studying human diseases. But it did find that the breath of these killer whales, when sampled, uh, droplets from that blow contained all kinds of bacteria and fungi that are known to cause disease in humans. So bacteria like Salmonella, like Staphylococcus aureus, uh, and then fungi like Penicillium and Foma. And it's not clear that these common bacteria that could also cause disease in humans would be present in the breath of all whales. It's also not clear that they have always been present even in these killer whales, because there's a possibility that these are sort of recently introduced microbial loads that are a result of human activity. We don't know, but it's a possibility. Uh, Giving a quote to this news article, the lead author Raverty says, quote, 
We're not sure if these microbes naturally occur in the marine environment or if they may be terrestrially sourced. These animals are long-ranging as they migrate along the coast, and uh, they are exposed to agricultural runoff and urban discharge, which may introduce a variety of microbes into the water. So ultimately, in this case, we don't know for sure. Like we can't take a a sample of what, uh, you know, whalers might have been getting blown in their faces from sperm whales or whales in general in the 19th century. But here, at least there are cases today of whales that are uh, that are ejecting breath from their lungs that contains droplets of mucus with bacteria that we know do cause disease in humans, whether that is is sort of a, a recent loading onto these whales or whether that would have been present a long time ago, we can't say for sure. But if you combine this with uh, the other observations that people, you know, people who work directly with marine mammals report a lot of sort of skin infections, conjunctivitis, and things like that, uh, it does not seem implausible to me that this story about uh, the whale blow being poisonous could emerge from different types of infections people get after getting whale mucus or, or other types of uh, whale body fluids on their skin or in their eyes. Yeah, there, there are a number of additional considerations to make based on this information, because on one hand, just by the nature of tall tales and sailor lore, how, how many times would it need to happen, really, for the stories to to generate, you know, you can just one uh, incident of somebody really swelling up after being exposed to whale blow might be enough. Um, add on top of that, if there are myths and legends pre-existing that, that uh, tie into some of this, those could add to the energy of these tales and could even in their origin be partially inspired by such experiences. And then I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the the whalers, we were just talking about all the different um things that one might have reactions to if exposed to, including like blood and organs. Like the whaler was not just out there to, um, uh, to, to, to see the whale, not just out there to uh, experience the whale. They were out there to, to kill and butcher the whales. Right. So it, it seems entirely likely that, yeah, if you're going to have an allergic reaction to one aspect of the, ba- the whale's um, anatomy, uh, there are going to be multiple additional opportunities to be infected by blood, viscera, etc., Absolutely agree with all that. So, yeah, can't say for sure, but my best guess is if this is not just a made up story, if there are if there were actually folk tales among whalers that the spout was poisonous, it probably came from people getting some kind of infection after being around whales. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, 
the more worried he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I have a, I have a few other little things to, for us to take into account. This first one uh, kind of ties into a, several different things we've discussed because it definitely concerns whaling. It concerns the idea of a liquid spout, and it also concerns uh, exposure uh, of, of the whaler to various um, parts of the whale's anatomy. Uh, so uh, it, this concerns the red spout. Uh, in the book Red Leviathan, The Secret History of Soviet Whaling, author and previous guest on the show, Ryan Tucker Jones, discusses the destruction wrought by the Soviet industrial um, whaling industry. And in, in, in this one particular case, uh, the Soviet industrial whaling harpoons. So these were not like the harpoons of the classical age of whaling, as depicted in Moby Dick. We're talking about things that are fired uh, and, and in this, ca- this case, uh, grenade tipped. so that they explode upon hitting uh, the whale and impacting the whale. He points out that the ideal first hit, ideal for the whalers, of course, not the whale, uh, would be for one of these to go off near the whale's vital organs. Wherever it hit, blood would pour into the cavity, and the brain would eventually succumb. But if the lungs were punctured, quote, blood would soon fountain out the blowhole. This was termed by the Soviet whalers a red spout and the whale would drown in its own fluids. And he goes into a great deal more detail about all of this, but suffice to say, like two to six harpoons were often required to kill the whale. Um, so uh, worth keeping this in mind, I think, in thinking about all of this. And, and also, it brings uh, to mind uh, an account that uh, I was reading regarding a mythic monstrous whale. So we have the word cetacean, uh, you know, referring to our, our, our whales. This, uh, I've read, uh, is connected to the name of, the, of a sea monster in Greek mythology, uh, Ketos or Cetos, uh, and it's believed by some, at least in some tellings, to be based on or interpreted as a whale. In Manilius's Monster by K.M. Coleman from 1983, the author points to whale-like qualities of spouting in the writings of first-century Roman poet Manilius. Uh, Ovid, however, doesn't write of spouting with these with this creature, but of vomiting bloody water. Um, so the the author of this paper, Coleman, contends that Manilius was possibly incorporating observational or even a, for the time natural insight into his treatment of the myth. But I also think this this uh, depiction of uh, that Ovid gives of the spouting of of bloody water. This also brings to mind. I mean, this I can't help but compare it to this idea of the red spout and wonder if it might be connected to some, you know, ancient world, older accounts of harpooning a whale, piercing the lung, and observing this reaction. Wow. But I, now I'm picturing this. So the, the Ketos, or the, the sea monster that is here being interpreted as a whale, I think was the monster in the Perseus and Andromeda story. So like when, uh, when Cassiopeia offers up uh, Andromeda as a sacrifice to the sea monster, we should maybe picture a, not like a big scaly man thing coming out of the water <laughs> the like Kraken, we see in yeah. Clash of the Titans, but instead a whale vomiting bloody water. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this idea of the vomiting whale, it, it goes, it, there's some other accounts of this as well, because I was poking around looking for just any other interesting like whale spout myths. Uh, that connected into what we're talking about here. And there are various myths about whales being, you know, monsters or gods and so forth. Um, and, but not all of them are necessarily insightful concerning the, the, uh, the, the spout or the blowhole. Uh, but I happen to cross something in Irish traditions that I can't help but wonder if this is something that end up helping inform sailors lore, uh, especially as discussed in Moby Dick. I found this initially in an 1899 publication, Notes and Folklore, from the Rene's copy of the uh, Dincentes by T.J. Westrop. 
published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland. Uh, the Dincenches, this is the Tales of Tales of the Duns, the Lore of Places. It's a class of texts from early Irish literature, and these were apparently added to by various writers up until the 11th or 12th centuries. So here's a quote from uh, this, this uh, particular uh, uh, author. Quote, a very dangerous monster, the Rosualt, is also described, which spouts at Murisk in Mayo, and a pestilence ensues. This is stated of the whale in other ancient works. When the whale spouts upwards, flying creatures die. When downwards, it kills the fish. And when at the land, a plague ensues. Whoa. So this is the idea of, of, a, of a whale shooting birds out of the air with its poisonous spout and occasionally, you know, coming close to the shore and being a, a bringer of plagues, uh, vomiting up plague upon the shore and letting that plague you know, like roll across the, the countryside as a vapor, a bringer of miasma. Okay, I was confused about the timeline for a second, but okay, so this is an 1899 publication, but it is discussing these earlier, like, uh, medieval Irish texts. Correct, yes. And for uh, just a little background, uh, Marisk is, uh, is in fact a village in County Mayo in Ireland. Um, and also, according to a different text, an 1892 text I was looking at, that's Rosalt, and I, I apologize if I'm butchering this, was sometimes understood as a sea animal, and I think sometimes translated as a walrus. Not that we should necessarily think of it as a walrus, but, you know, some, sometimes there's a, a shift in what these terms are referring to over time. So since we had a sea monster here, uh, especially one of European origin, uh, I turned, as I always do, to the books of Carol Rose. She has these uh, wonderful uh, pair of encyclopedias, one dealing with monsters and giants and others, the other one dealing with fairies and leprechauns. And there's some crossover between the books, but, uh, but they're both great. So I looked it up and Rose has a little more insight on the Rosalt, which she says is an alternate name for the Murisk, a monster fish of Irish tradition. She writes that it was said to inhabit the region of Croag Patrick, and it was super poisonous. If it vomited in the water, all the sea life around it would die. The fumes from its mouth would cause dead birds to fall out of the sky, and it could breathe on a coastal region and bring disease. Okay, that sort of matches what we were reading a minute ago, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If and it's I, at the coast, it brings the pestilence, it kills the birds if it shoots up, and it kills the fish if it shoots down. Right. And I also found another source referring to this. This is from P.W. Joyce in 1906's A Smaller Social History of Ancient Ireland. Um, and uh, this author added, basically says the same thing, but added that it was, quote, able to vomit in three different ways, three <laughs> years in succession. He adds that the vomiting into the water also wrecked ships. And when it vomited towards the land in the third year, he uh, the whale caused, quote, a pestilential vapor to creep over the country that killed men and four-footed animals. No, not the four-footed animals. <laughs> the four-footed animals are just at the forefront of strange death. I mean, this. how many times are we going <laughs> to, yeah. in uh, uh, this year and last, have we <laughs> talked about strange reasons that four-legged animals are dying in, in uh, the British Isles? We never considered this as an explanation for the cattle mutilation panic. What if it was actually a marisk? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What if a, a, a whale vomited? Uh, so this is uh, th this is all interesting. Again, I, I don't think that I, th I think potentially one has to you know take into account these these myths and legends about poisonous vomit coming out of these whales or whale like creatures. These also firsthand accounts of potentially getting some sort of an infection after contact with a whale spout or whale blood, etc. Um, but I also can't help but wonder if there's some connection, particularly between this story um, and perhaps encounters with beached and dead whales, uh, where mm. there's, of course, decomposition going on, and therefore there's going to be a very strong, awful odor, the kind of odor that we would, you know, we would associate with with illness, perhaps. So I wonder, I wonder if there's any connective tissue there as well. Well, Rob, I think this has been a, a mighty fun and interesting exploration, even though we didn't get a definitive answer on the poisonous whales thing. I, I think uh, what we did find out has been enlightening. And 
uh, as Melville would say, through all the thick mists and the dim doubts, uh, you know, the, the divine intuitions now and then shoot. So our fog has been enkindled with a heavenly ray. Oh, very nice. All right. We're going to go ahead and close it out then. But yeah, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have additional insight, experience, et cetera, just general thoughts on what we've talked about in this pair of episodes or our previous episodes on, on gray whales in particular, write in. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact episode. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.